0: Hello, and thanks for joining us for this month's edition of The Scope of Things, a no-nonsense look at the realities and enigmas of clinical research based on those closest to the action who aim for great and, if need be, are willing to shake things up. I'm Deborah Borfitz, Senior Science Writer for Clinical Research News. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Christopher Boone, Vice President and Global Head of Health Economics and Outcomes Research at AbbVie. Who is a guru at putting real world evidence to work in studies involving humans? Chris, it is so nice to have you as my first podcast guest of 2023. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. Thank you for the opportunity to join you.
0: So, Chris, only over the past few years has pharmaceutical drug development changed to include real world evidence more often primarily to help researchers identify potential patients and create the right criteria for clinical trials. Since you are a self-described data hippie, I'd like to start off with your down-to-earth status update on how the industry is doing overall in terms of democratizing data in this way.
1: Oh, I mean, that's a very, 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 very good question. Uh, I think overall, if you know, if I had to give us a grade, I'll probably say we're a, a B minus. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, it's not bad. I think so. I mean, I think we've we progressed tremendously over the last several years. I mean, I, I've been I've been in this long enough to to remember when uh, the the concept of real world data and real world evidence was first utilized. Right? I mean, and people uh, across the industry still didn't fully understand what it meant people were actually using the terms interchangeably, like uh, like, like they meant the same thing and they didn't. Mm-hmm. So it just show, it shows that um, within the last six or seven years, um, the tremendous strides that we made in the industry, I think that we're at a place where folks are really coming up with very novel use cases for how uh, rural data can be utilized to generate rural evidence. We certainly have seen a tremendous amount of progress being made on the uh, on the regulatory submission side. I mean, we've always been somewhat on the commercial commercialization side of the house. Um, but to think that we've done so much more in R&D um, has really been a pleasant surprise. And it's something that I've certainly, personally have been advocating for for years now. So I'm I'm happy to see where we are in that space.
0: Okay, so this, I'm guessing, then started long before the 21st Century Cures Act uh, that was enacted in December, 2016, requiring the FDA to propose scenarios under which real-world evidence can meet regulatory standards, or it was just being used in a different way prior to then? Can, can you give us some of the backstory here, Chris?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think if you think about 21st century cures, I mean, some of those uh, some of those initiatives or activities were somewhat underway. Like, for example, if you look at many of the post, uh, post-approval commitments that pharmaceutical or life sciences companies had, whether it be for safety or efficacy reasons— um, those were inevitably generating real world evidence that would support a regulatory decision making. I just don't think that there was a standardized sort of submission process of RWE at the time, and and I think when, when you think about uh, the 21st Century Cures Act, what it did was it sort of came in and said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna focus on how can we better utilize real world evidence to ultimately accelerate uh, the uh, regulatory decision making uh, process. Um, How can we um, better utilize the, you know, to build on that adoption of electronic health records and all those other things that we made um, from a lot of uh, investments through, uh, through the federal government earlier in the 2000s? um, How do we better utilize many of these platforms to support much of the regulatory decision making? And ultimately, how do we get to a space where we're continuously tracking how this, uh, this therapy or this intervention is performing in the real world? Uh, context, and so I think um, you know I do think the uh, 21st Century Cures Act was probably the single biggest uh, catalyst um, for the uh, expanded use of of RWE, especially in, uh, on the R and D side of the house. Um, but I do think there were certain use cases where it was being used. This this is just more of a, uh, formalizing it and um, and really sort of giving uh, the industry the license. Um, to to be able to be uh, to think innovatively about how we could better utilize real evidence going
0: forward, but it's certainly hard to control for variables in the real world in the same way, of course, you would do like in a clinical trial setting. Um, and that's sort of been the the key holdup and concern. And ways to get around that has been the talking points around this primarily. Would would that be true, or is it is is it something different that that has been holding us up until? The last few years to really get serious on this
1: well i think I, I think there's generally been confusion about it i mean if you uh on one hand with the 21st century cures act the one the, one of the things that i absolutely love about it it was pretty much a non-partisan issue it was a bipartisan support um, for that particular legislation i mean it was uh pretty much a republican-led congress at the time with a democratic president and president obama and, uh, and they got it done so i mean so from a political talking point perspective uh, unlike some of the other issues, this was not one of them, right? I think they uh, I think um both parties uh, very much took pride uh, in the passing of this particular legislation, and they saw the benefit in it. Um, I think when it comes to sort of other barriers to why we haven't seen greater adoption, I would almost say those are more systemic and more cultural um than you think. I think that um, Um, If you really think about real-world evidence, and and I always tell people, you have to think of it almost as a, well, not almost, it is a disruptive innovation, um, truly, right? I mean, it it truly has the potential to challenge the status quo, um, the way that we've thought about doing uh, drug discovery in the past, the way that we've done drug development in the past, and even the way we commercialize Uh, many therapies, has all been challenged by just the opportunity for for this data, for this evidence to influence decision-making in ways we've never seen before. There used to be a point when um, clinical trial data evidence was the primary source, and it's still the gold standard, I'm not undermining that, but Mm -hmm. that was the primary source, the sole source almost, in, in many of the clinical decisions, and now it's not, right? I mean, so now you have providers and payers and others who have Access to real world data. They do their analysis. They generate real world evidence, and they see how it affects uh, their populations, and they make decisions accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and uh, and so I, you know, that's what I mean by disruptive. And even in terms of um, how you think about clinical trials itself, um, now you're hearing a tremendous amount of discussion around diversity in clinical trials, which obviously the only way you're going to be able to unpack that is through real world data and real world evidence. Uh, You're hearing a a lot about the the possibility of digital technologies being incorporated and doing more decentralized trials more Mm -hmm. community-based trials and uh, pragmatic clinical trials. All these things are really predicated on, 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 I really think, on three sort of disruptive innovations that we've seen. One is real-world evidence. The other is the expanded use of all the digital technologies that we've seen and more focus on healthcare and life sciences by many of the big tech companies in order to develop these tools. And then also, uh, sort of the resurgence, if you will, of uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning as sort of an advanced analytical capability. Now that we have all this data, right? Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I think um, the the um, the biggest barrier we got now is uh, 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 understanding that we're not going to know everything. Some of this does require uh, shifting more to a sort of learning based culture. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I think uh, pharma itself has done. Very well, at least at, as it pertains to this. I mean, you know, pharma, so the pharmaceutical industry has done tremendous amount of uh, great things. You know, I, the list goes on and on in that space. Um, but we've honestly, we've done clinical trials the same way for the last five decades, right? And so, um, and we've mastered that. So it's like mm-hmm. uh, asking that to be disrupted is it's a tough pill to swallow.
0: Yeah, we're doing well. You know, to pivot is always it was always hard to see. There's something better ahead. Uh, In the context of of clinical trials specifically, um, the idea uh, around real-world evidence is to broaden sort of the story of a drug's value to patients, I believe, and of course the function of health economics and outcomes research is about generating that evidence evidence. Since this describes your role at Abvi, please please share with listeners how you go about choosing your data sources and, and de-identifying data and what sorts of complications ensue during this search and find exercise.
1: You know, if you had asked me this question five years ago, I probably would have gave you a different answer. It was just okay.
0: <laughs> then and now. Okay. What was it what, what you said five years ago and what do you say now? Well, I mean, yeah, what I did you mean, learn? I mean,
1: well, I think we five years ago. You know, because part of this is cultural influence too, right? Social cultural norms. Like, what are what are the people really looking for? And I think right now in twenty twenty two, the the issue of data privacy and how my data is being used is probably more prominent amongst the average citizen than it was ever before. I mean, you know, when I think about it, five to ten years ago, you mostly saw a lot of patient advocacy groups who were speaking on behalf of all patients, but the patients themselves may not have been have been as knowledgeable as many of those advocates were in, in, in sort of having these discussions. But now um I think that's different. I think even my my uh my dear mother who knows nothing about it may ask, like what is my data being used for and why? Right. Yeah. I mean a question to ask. So it gets into a lot of uh, your consent issues. And I think um so as we think about like uh you know, H-E-O-R, which is has been one of the obviously leading functions driving the generation of RWE, we have things to think about now that we probably didn't have to think about five to 10 years ago. And one of those issues is privacy and, sec- and data security and actually having a data strategy. Um, Before it used to be, we treated um, data curation, it was almost a one-to-one relationship with a study, right? So if you... You had a study, you developed a protocol, you went and you got the right data for that study, and that was it. I think now where we shifted to is creating health data platforms, where it allows uh, us to do many studies from one data set, right? And so it's much more coordinated, it's much more strategic, it's much more enterprise thinking. And and honestly, it's really around, um, you know, doing a number of studies that range from you know, whether it be natural history studies, whether they be studies to understand the current standard of care, whether it be comparative effectiveness studies, I mean, comparative safety studies for many of our folks in, in epidemiology, you name it. But the point of it is, is that we can use uh, very similar, if not exact data sets in order to do many of these things, which was not the case before. I think another element to this is that we now have uh, very, very different types of data. You know, for us, um you know before it was primarily administrative claims data i mean that was the cleanest data it was structured uh it was much easier for us to uh, access uh generally we didn't have as many issues around data quality um but now um there's greater interest in sort of the outcomes the clinical outcomes of many of the therapies and so you have to now really utilize uh the clinical data you also have to be um, willing and thinking of a strategy that uh, addresses the patient generated data uh, which includes now, you know, uh PROs or patient reported outcomes data, which includes uh patient experience data, which includes um like the health health and treatment history. I mean, if you think about it, much of much of the data we care about is captured outside the walls of the provider environment now. Mm-hmm. Right. It used to be that we only had access to data that was within a provider environment. But now with many all the uh with with all of the um uh, digital technologies, you can you can really understand the environment uh, and the experience of a patient at real time. And, uh, and I think that's ultimately what we're going to get to. Um, I still think, you know, the idea of using um, the cost and utilization data will always be paramount and critical for what we do, because again, the value discussion um, is part of it is economic. It's clinical as well, but it is economic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so so having that sort of insight, um is 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 critical and important. Um, you know, we've had a pretty aggressive strategy with um, um, establishing patient registries. Um, and the great thing about patient registries is that they go very deep and they're longitudinal around a specific um, disease area or a therapeutic area, right, or condition and and I think that's really where you're seeing the difference. Now, before, When you asked me like five years ago, we were just trying to, you know, I remember I made a statement that we, Pharma was in a sort of a data arms race, right? Where we were really literally trying to just acquire and buy any and all data that we possibly could, even if that data made no sense at all, right? It was just about accumulating and amassing as much data as we can. I think now um, the industry has gotten much more mature and we're much more targeted. Uh, we're much more thoughtful in how we're going to utilize the data so therefore you get become much more strategic in the data you want to target the partnerships you want to form and how that data will ultimately be utilized and uh, and we do an annual review process of all the data assets we have and figure out which ones make the most sense and and you know to now and, and in the future and then we make um you know decisions as to if we want to continue with those uh assets or not and that's all part of it
0: Yep, it, it, and I'm going to pivot here really quickly because I read in the news recently that you were appointed to the governing board of the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute, where where the mission is to help patients and their caregivers make better informed health decisions. So I'm wondering what kind of crossover does this have, or might it have, with your real world evidence generating work objectives going on at AbbVie?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's some crossover. I mean, but let me let me say this first. I mean, I, I've always been um, a huge fan of PCORI from the point of its inception and its mission. And I uh, find it a, to be a, a great honor for me to be able to serve on the Board of Governors. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought that years ago that I would be in this position, but I'm I'm certainly uh, humbled by the opportunity to serve on on, on the Board of Governors for PCORI. Um, but, you know, when you think about um, the origins of PCORI, um, I always thought of it as the organization that would sort of fund drive and enable a lot of the comparative effectiveness research um, that was needed uh, with many of the medical inter- interventions that were out there. Um, and so it's almost like, you know, if you want to make it sort of analogous, I would almost say they were the HEOR department for the federal government, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were our peer group. And and what they've done with the sort of boat of governors is they've comprised a um, a very transdisciplinary group of folks right um from all the different sectors within the industry um from all different sort of professions and and disciplines and trainings and and so in and we all get the great uh, honor of serving on this this board but um, but as it pertains to um my work at AV um there's there's not a direct connection um mm-hmm. other than myself <laughs> um mm-hmm. but but I will say that PCORI itself even with uh the PCORnet, which is their uh, data infrastructure, um, has the ability to sort of generate rural evidence and uh, in addition to sort of funding many much of the work that's happening uh, across the country. So I think um, they play a very vital role. Um, and I think that um again, that's sort of a uh seems to get bipartisan support of PCORI and, and its mission too and you know and and, and they' they have great leadership, a great mission a uh, great organization and they're they're doing a tremendous amount of uh, uh some great work. So um I um I think it's really good. And I think it's good that they're 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 open to having pharma representation uh on their on their board. Um, so it should show that they're they're committed to to this work too.
0: Yeah. So okay, so we got PCORI, we, we have regulators, we have payers, we have physicians, uh, everyone demanding um that real world evidence um, be used and be put to practical use to improve healthcare for all and to to make sure that the medicines we develop, you know, are are, you know, justly developed for all, if you will. Um and I'm wondering about the if you could elaborate a little about how these changes in mindset um and these voices that are that are speaking forth on this topic ha- have led to some real value adds in terms of making clinical trials, in fact, more patient-centric, not just theoretically, but in fact, more patient-centric?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, I always like to say in terms of patient engagement, I think that what the conversation around creating patient-centricity has forced uh, industry to do is to think about how do we more proactively engage with the patient community and make their voice heard and, and the pull through. Uh, from an H.O.R. perspective, we've done that. We have, um, um, you know, we've we've established a patient-centered outcomes research center of, uh, of what we call center of expertise uh, led by one of my great colleagues, Robin Carson, uh, within our organization. And she, um, and sort of, and that's really around sort of ensuring that we're able to reflect the patient voice in many of our study protocols and making sure that we have that pull through of that patient experience data that's generated um, to effectively make uh, decisions. We've even had uh, some recent successes where um, some of the PROs that we, were de- that we developed were included in the labels of certain therapies, uh, the drug label of certain therapies, which is a huge thing, right? So in addition to sort of the efficacy and safety of a therapy, you also had the um, patient experience or uh, patient uh, reported outcome included there as well. I think that, um, but generally, I think engaging with the patient communities and, and having them understand, even providing input and perspective over how we should be designing trials going forward, right? Um, I think the whole rise of the decentralized trials is almost uh, sort of consequential to that to that narrative, to that discussion, right? You know that the vast majority of these patients don't live within um, you know, a, a, a reasonable driving distance to um, to many of these sites, and it makes it very difficult for them to to if even if you're able to recruit them and consent them, it's hard to retain them, right? And so, uh, so I think the idea of the decentralized trial was pretty much pretty much predicated on community-based sites, easy to get to, with sort of a hybrid model of going to the clinical site if and when necessary. You know, a sort of uh, and also utilizing much of the telehealth technologies in order to enable that.
0: Right.
1: I think that's all sort of spurred by um, this this movement towards patient centricity. Um, that hasn't always been the incentive, right? I mean, because initially the incentive um, has been historically uh, that we wanted to get the drug approved as fast as we could, and um, and and you know, and you know, <laughs> try to manage the cost uh, that it takes to develop those drugs as best we can. Um, as well, and so now, um, even with the sort of the discussions around patient centricity, you also get into the discussions around the um, uh, the diversity piece and they being able to reach um, what would be otherwise unreachable populations to be part of your trials too. So I think that um, when you think about the trial, I just think that it's it's you know uh, it's really going through. A period where we can reimagine the clinical trial in a different way, using sort of a combination of different uh, uh, techniques and technologies um, to make it better for all patients.
0: Very good. Okay, what about some actual um, business gains? I mean, can we put some dollars and cents to this, um, or some statistics, and any sense at all that that have come from the use of real-world evidence in a clinical trial, and and uh, and the success of drug development itself? Um, I don't know, cost and resources. What, however, you might want to you know frame this, uh, or, or is that asking too much of, of the available real world data to be able to you know generate that kind of?
1: You know? I, I don't think it's really asking <laughs> too much because I think that it's a fair question. I mean, I think generally, but but it's truly on a case by case basis, and and really, um, you know, I, I mean, even even at the scope conference, I mean, my talk is really centered around how do we do this all faster, better, and cheaper, right? So the principle is that. Um, you, you, the business case is that you can do it faster, better, and cheaper. That's why you're doing it. Um, but I think just the uh, material gains that you get, I mean, generally, anytime any RWE study you do, it is faster than doing a trial. Now, it's debatable but by some as to whether the quality is higher or not right and some of the confounding factors and and whether that that uh that evidence that we generate will be acceptable to regulators which is hence the reason you have the 21st century cures act going back to one of your original questions mm. uh, but i think um to sort of standardize the process for what would be acceptable to the regulators from an rwe perspective is what we're all seeking and once we get that then i think it becomes uh much more meaningful but i think um you know, it, it's not, it's, it's, you know, they're, 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 with the studies that we've seen, it's not uncommon to shave years off the time it would take. Um, I, I think one of the best examples to look at is look at uh, what we saw here recently with the pandemic and, and the vaccine, right? Um, typically, a vaccine would take 12 to 15 years of development time. Um, you know, I mean, anywhere from two to $3 billion to generate under normal. Um, circumstances, right? And uh, and then you had those organizations that were able to do it in what was less than 12 months' time. I mean, that's like record-breaking time. And a lot of that was was enabled with uh, the use of real-world evidence. And I think that that's like the perfect case study uh, for how uh, RWE can be used and should be used mm-hmm. um, in the development process going forward.
0: As you just alluded to a moment ago, I want to make sure listeners didn't miss this. You're going to be speaking at the and you Scope, Scopes, that's a Summit for Clinical Ops Executives um, in, in early February. And uh, your topic is on how to effectively utilize real-world evidence for informing regulatory pathways. So I'm hoping um, you can give us maybe a little sneak peek of the types of things you'll be talking about. Um, I'm guessing this might include the uh, growing popularity of using real-world evidence to replace the traditional standard of care comparator arm in in like oncology and rare disease trials, as well as maybe more novel uses in the product. Development process. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's really going to talk. I'm just going to go from the point of how we can reimagine, um, you know, sort of our clinical discovery and clinical development efforts, utilizing real world evidence and what many of the novel use cases are for um, for doing just that. You know, and we'll we'll walk through um, strategically how an organization should be thinking about it, how they should be organizing themselves around it, and uh, and even some of the key lessons learned that we've seen um over the last several years and and things that people can avoid right i mean the 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 benefit of being a first mover is that you're a first mover the downside is that you have to absorb and learn all the tough lessons that others may be able to avoid when they come after you and i think that um but you that's just a, a risk you're willing to accept and i think that what i hope to do is to sort of initiate dialogue around the science of building these sort of functions and capabilities and how we can do it at scale, you know, right? I mean, I think uh, one of the challenges that we've seen uh, with people, uh, one, I guess, one of the criticisms of the use of RWE is that it's sort of a one-off, and it can't be scaled to be uh, sort of standardized, if you will. Um, I think um, the regulators believe it can be. I also believe it can be, um, but but in order to do that, you have to you have to invest, you have to organize yourself, you have to be clear about your strategy, and you have to go through the necessary. Uh, cultural transformation in order to, to build that out. And so these are all things that we'll talk about. Um, You know, obviously, I I won't shy away from the issue around uh, sort of a health equity and diversity issues, because I know that that's a big part of this too. Absolutely. Uh, round it all up with all of those things. I I feel like I'm talking through my outline right now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, we don't want to give it all away. (laughs) But I, for one, can't wait to learn more, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. I'm sure the topic of real-world evidence and all its real-world complexities will be a trending topic throughout the upcoming conference. Borrowing the good luck words so often expressed to performers as they make their way to the stage on opening night, break a leg. <laughs>
1: thank you very much and thank you for having me.
0: And as always, a big thank you to everyone out there for listening in. Chris is one of an impressive lineup of keynote speakers for the upcoming Scope event being held February 6th through February 9th in sunny Orlando, Florida. It is always one of the biggest gathering spots for the clinical research community around collaboration and innovation. And you can register online using discount code SOT23 and receive 15% off any current registration rate. Simply visit scopesummit.com. Bye for now.